Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Coming up in this edition of the TV Black Box one-on-one podcast, we chat to television presenter, legend and writer Mel Walden. In a media career that spans six decades, we chat about journalism, the media and the recent cuts to the news division at Channel 10. This is TV Black Box. Bringing you the inside goss from the TV industry. Hello and welcome to episode three of the TV Black Box one-on-one podcast. I'm Aaron Ryan. These podcasts give the opportunity to delve a little deeper and spend a bit more time engaging with a special guest. Today we have Mel Walden, former presenter of 10 Eyewitness News. He knows more than anyone what the news division is feeling at the moment at Channel 10 and he joins me now. Mel, welcome and thank you for joining us at TV Black Box. Thank you very much indeed, Aaron. Thank you for having me on board. Now, you're the second guest uh, in a row that's uh, from Victoria, so I have to ask, how are things going for you in lockdown? (laughs) Well, same as everybody else, I suppose. It's uh, not very pleasant, but it's a bit like Groundhog Day. Each day is exactly the same. Um, And we're just treating it as a day-by-day occurrence. We've got three more weeks, I think, left in this this particular lockdown period. So we're just trying to make the most of it and um, getting by reasonably well. Oh, awesome. Um, so I just want to start by uh, asking, you've obviously presented in times of live breaking news. Um, tell me how you think the current presenters at the networks will be feeling now. Um, I'm guessing, obviously, there's a sense of anxiety amongst all Australians and in particular Victorians at the moment with COVID. But for a newsreader, there must be a heightened sense of adrenaline and there must be that feeling that these are the moments of, that you work for for your career. It's rather interesting at the moment. Um, with the, the COVID flaring across the country, there are more and more people watching television of them perhaps ever before. It was uh, a few years ago when I started to look at the figures, and I think it was about 95 or 90 percent of Australians were getting their news from uh, free-to-air television. Uh, it probably dropped back a bit over the last you know, half a dozen years or so, but it's picked up by two to three hundred percent since the lockdown happened in March. People are just turning free-to-air television news. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily translate into revenue because, unfortunately, with the lockdown comes uh, restrictions on spending, and a lot of jobs have been lost. And this is what we we turn to what's happening at uh, Channel Ten at the moment. Uh, I've always thought, and it's a very flippant comment to make, but there are three certainties in life, and it's death, taxes, and uh, cutbacks at Network 10. (laughs) (laughs) We we kind of get used to a bit of 
of that situation over the years. It happens about every 10 years or so. But it's a very sad occasion, and it's compounded, of course, by the crisis at the moment that we're all going through. So loss of jobs does not necessarily mean that you're going to pick up another job when you walk out the doors. It's, uh, it's tough all around. It's a terrible, terrible situation, and I feel very, very sad for my former colleagues there. Yeah. I'm not just at Channel 10, I might, not just at Channel 10. I mean, it's across the board, uh, you know. There's uh, hundreds of people going through that situation. It's just, uh, you know, when you hear it on television, uh, the people that do have to face the job uh, are rather high-profile people, so people can relate to it. Yeah, we'll get to, uh, I guess, 10 specifically in a moment, but I guess talking about COVID-19 and everything that's happening at the moment, there must be been stories like this that have affected you personally over, over your large career. What stories can you think of that affected you personally? Oh, there were many, many stories that affected me personally. Um, I suppose people often ask me what the hardest story you ever had to read, and without a question of doubt, was I think it was in '83 when we, when the Channel Seven News helicopter crashed and we lost all our um, uh, all our colleagues in that one crash. Um, and that that was a terrible night. Now, is that the only time I think I can ever remember in my, you know, uh, all my years in the, in the television news industry? We recorded the news that night. We recorded up to the first commercial break, and uh, I can remember getting the phone call in the afternoon at about one o'clock to say, "Come on in. Don't switch on the car radio. Just come straight into work. Something terrible has happened." And uh, when I got there, and of course, the first thing you do is switch on the car radio when you when you're driving in. And I heard the news that the helicopter had gone down, and the, wow. there were no survivors. And I had no idea who they were at that stage until I arrived at work. And then the boss came up to me and he said, "The only way we're going to get through this, mate, is if you write it as well as read it." And so he put me into an office and gave me a typewriter and sheets of paper and away I went. And so by the time five o'clock came around, I was pretty immune to the uh, <clears throat> the crisis that had happened. And uh, But I still couldn't see myself getting through the news bulletin. So they decided, and in those days, the news were at 6.30 and uh, up for half an hour duration. So um, I <clears throat> went into the studio at six o'clock and we tried to record to the uh, first commercial break which was primarily the story of the crash. And I think I would have had about four goes at it and kept breaking down, and we got to about 25 past. And uh, they said, this is, this is your last opportunity, so otherwise we have to go live. So I had one more go at it and finally got through to the uh, commercial break. And then we just turned that around. <clears throat> By the time it went to air, I pretty well immune myself to, uh, to the story. But that was, a, that was the hardest night. Um, but then, you know, we had another crisis in, um, with, with, with Balibo, with East Timor, mm. um, in 1975, and when we lost an entire crew in East Timor when they were killed by the Indonesians. And uh, if you want me to go into detail about that story, I, I, I can. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, it, we all knew that a civil war had broken out. Anymore. And we um, all put our hands up to go because that was the nature of the beast. We, you know, it was a good story. It was breaking right on our doorstep. So I was the first to put my hand up and I was told to go home and pack a bag. And 
by the time I got into the station, one of the other journalists had beaten me to it. And uh, they headed off on a Friday morning, uh, flew to Darwin, and then from Darwin to Dilly. And um, then we communicated with them for about a week. Uh, they were filing stories out, sending them by jeep back to Dilly and then flying them back to Melbourne. And uh, it was on the Thursday night, uh, a week after they had left. They left on the Friday, so this is six days uh, after they'd left. I was sitting at my desk and the phone rang and I picked it up and there was a woman on the phone and she was hysterical. She was crying. And I said, what can I do to help? She said, um, my son is dead. My son is dead. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Who's calling? She said, uh, it's uh, Mrs. Shackleton, Greg Shackleton's mother. I know my son is dead. It's a mother's intuition. I know he's dead. And I said, look, I'm sorry. If anything had happened to the boys in Timor, we'd be the first to hear about it. I can assure you nothing has happened. And she kept on going, no, you don't understand. It's a mother's intuition. I know, I know. So I said, look, I'll get management to give you a call. I hung up, and I didn't do anything about it that night. The following morning, she was, she was wrong. Uh, when she rang me, uh, Greg was very much alive. He was killed in the early hours of the following morning. So it was not a mother's, it wasn't a mother's intuition. It was a mother's terrible premonition. And that rocked us to the boat. I mean, it's the first, and then, of course, we discovered that uh, five journalists had been killed by the invading Indonesians. And it wasn't just their deaths that upset us. It was the the total indifference of the government. And not just that government of the time, um, Gough Whitlam, every government since has denied or or refused to believe what what actually happened for fear of upsetting the Indonesian government. So we've lived with this all this time, you know, and some stage in life, yeah, life's got to go on. But uh, it was a terrible period in which we questioned, we all questioned whether, you know, what journalism was all about and what sort of support we'd get if we were in that situation. And quite frankly, we didn't get any support. So uh, uh, it was just a questionable period, terrible period. But um, life goes on, doesn't it? Yeah. Interesting when you talk about those two stories, how also the the issue about technology, how that's changed. Obviously, you were talking about using a typewriter there to, to do up the first story yeah. and then sending yeah. the stuff back in the Jeep, um, you know, and flying it back to Melbourne. I mean, some people wouldn't be able to imagine that now. So, yeah, technology Well, has... I, I, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, in uh, a year before um, uh, to the, the Timor tragedy uh, was Cyclone Tracy. And uh, it, that, as you might might remember from history, was on uh, Christmas Eve. Mm. And uh, on Christmas morning when I arrived in, uh, and I was only a cadet journalist at that stage. I hadn't earned my stripes at all. And I heard the boss sort of say to the chief of staff, who have we got to send to Timor, uh, to, uh, to Darwin? And the chief of staff said, well, we've got young Mal Walden. And... Uh, he said, oh, I remember him clearly saying, oh, shit, isn't there anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> he came across to my desk and he said, Mal, he said, I'm going to send you to Darwin. And uh, we'd had a bit of a, a struggle in my c- cadetship years. And he turned to me and he said, this is your last chance, son. It'll either make you or break you. Don't let me down. So with the fear of my job and the threats from my news boss, uh, he chartered a Learjet. Now, that in itself was pretty remarkable in those 
years because we worked for the Herald and Weekly Times, which was a pretty austere organization. Uh, when to even travel on the tram, you had to sign in triplicate. And he'd gone out and hired a Learjet, of all things. Right. Uh, so he kind of put his job on the line as well. So we flew out about an hour and a half, two hours later, and uh, flew into Darwin, came in over Darwin in very early hours of Boxing Day morning. And I can remember looking out the window, <clears throat> and it was a bit like looking at those black and white photos we've all seen of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the atomic blast. There was just nothing left for the city of Darwin. And we touched down, and uh, there was no skill in getting the story because uh, everywhere the camera looked, um, the, the, you know, there was devastation. And everyone you spoke to had a, a harrowing story of survival to tell. So there was no skill in that. The skill came in getting the story out because in those days there was no, at, no communication whatsoever, no mobile phones in those days. There was no satellite link. Mm. Uh, so um, the, 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 the guy that was in charge of Darwin, General Alan Stretton, I interviewed him, and he asked me at the end of the interview what I was going to do with that. And I said, oh, I'm putting it on the plane, and we're sending it back to, to Melbourne. He said, no, son, you're not. I'm the chief commander of Darwin, and I've commandeered every aircraft. The only way that plane of yours takes off it is if it's full of evacuees. So I tore around the, the airport, which was leaking like a sieve at that stage, and there were lots of people with bandages on. Yeah. So I scooped up as many as I could, put them on that plane, oh. went back to him and said, the plane is full. And he got his aide to cap to check, and sure enough, they gave it clearance to take off. So we had uh, arrived in Darwin at about 6 o'clock in the morning. By 9 o'clock, the plane was taking off with the first film of what had happened in Cyclone Tracy ravaged Darwin. Now, I was not aware that it was the first film. When it arrived back in Melbourne at about three o'clock in the afternoon, it was put on a processor and then it was quickly edited. As I said earlier, the news went to air in those days at 6.30, came off the processor at 6.45. They opened up the satellite link and around the world, that was the first film footage that the world saw of what had happened in the aftermath of Cyclone and during Cyclone Tracy. Wow. So uh, I earned my stripes through Cyclone Tracy, a terrible thing to have to achieve, you know, yeah. some sort of recognition to such a tragedy. But that, again, is the nature of the beast of television. But as it was no... Um, we stayed on for another 10 days, and we, we, we followed that whole procedure of uh, filming during the morning, going out... Uh, with the film canister, uh, pleading with the pilots that were evacuating Darwin, the pilots that were flying to Melbourne, would you take the canister of film, uh, phone the station, Channel 7, when you're about an hour out of Melbourne and someone will pick it up? You know, we never lost a single story in 10 days, and each story had headline. And that was before satellites, before mobile phones. Uh, it was just a remarkable feat. Uh, it just goes to show what can be achieved under such terrible difficulties. Yeah, almost hard to imagine. Well, a major discussion at point is obviously the recent changes being made at 10 in, in the news division. But to put it that in context, because I'm sure you've seen it all over 60 years, you were the presenter of Seven News in Melbourne, and new management came in and you were given the flick. But I understand that that was just minutes before going to air. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're talking about uh, ch the Channel 7 yeah, takeover. Seven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, <clears throat> just to uh, sort of give you a, a, an understanding of 
a, a bit of a, a background to that. Um, going back, you might remember that Reg Anseth launched ATV Channel O in 1964. Um, in 1979, uh, Rupert Murdoch bought the controlling stake in Ansett Holdings, and that included Network 10. Uh, this triggered a, a government inquiry leading to new media laws, which were restricted an owner from operating a newspaper and a television in one city. Now, at that stage um, in the 80s, Frank Lowy had bought Network 10. Murdoch had bought his dad's newspaper, The Herald. So in 1987, Murdoch was forced to sell his interest in HSV7. Um, uh, Channel 7 in Sydney was owned by FX. Channel 7 in Melbourne was owned by The Herald. And there was much antagonism between the two stations because we weren't a network um, in the 80s or in the 70s and 80s. We weren't a network in, in a network sense. We were, just, we were just brought together by convenience. So there were a lot of scores to be settled when Fairfax pounced on seven in 1987, and they moved in, breaking basically every corporate governance of, um, of uh, morality in their takeover. They marched in <clears throat> almost as if they enjoyed sacking people. And in that first yeah. week, they got rid of all Melbourne programming. They not only got rid of the Melbourne personalities and replaced them with Sydney personalities, but they even got rid of uh, football, as it was then. Mm. Now, you know, that, that's, a, that's a cultural change. Yeah. And for association to march in and just take control in such a brutal fashion, they were nicknamed the Princes of Darkness, and they really were uh, a terrible bunch of, of guys that came down from Sydney. And just to even the scores that have been um, building up over the years, the antagonism between the two, um, they even packaged up all the new equipment that Channel 7 had accrued and sent it back to their head office in Sydney. Anyway, the, the week went by, and it was just a terrible place to work. So on the Friday when I was called into uh, the acting manager's head, because the manager at that stage, Ron Casey, had left, yeah. and uh, there was no one really running the show. So I walked into the, his office, and he was a really good friend of mine. <clears throat> and as I walked in, I was confronted with the executives from Sydney, and I could tell the minute I walked in that you know, my number was up because they all looked at their feet. None of them looked at me in the eye. And it was left to my uh, my colleague to say, Mal, you know, some terrible decisions have had to be made. This is one of the hardest. We have to tell you that your services are no longer required. And I just said, oh, that's okay. And it was about three minutes to three. I remember specifically because I looked at my watch. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? And do you want me to read the news tonight? And they said, well, yeah, would you? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Um, but, you know, you just sacked me, and now you want me to read the news? But, okay, um, can you negotiate with my lawyer just when you want me to finish and we can sort of come to some sort of amicable uh, departure? And they were kind of so relieved that I was not throwing a tantrum. They said, yeah, no worries, Mel, no worries. So I got into the lift, and it was just about two minutes past three when I walked out, and I bumped into the head of the sporting department, and he said, is it true what I just heard? And I said, how did you hear that? And he said, it was on the three o'clock news. Oh. So <laughs> the guy that was replacing me, a very likable guy by the name of Greg Pierce from Perth, yeah. and uh, he'd announced it in Perth because of the time difference. 
Uh, he didn't realise that I hadn't been told at that stage that my services were no longer required. So it came down to the wire service and it led the news bulletins in Melbourne. Well, what I was not aware of was the animosity that was going to be felt by the people of Victoria. They kind of uh, came to my support <clears throat> in unprecedented manner. Uh, I finished the news that night and as I walked out, there were protests in the street. Uh, all the TV crews and all the newspapers were out there. Um, I just assumed that everybody in television at some stage got the sack. Uh, I mean, that was like, again, the nature, the nature of the beast. But I didn't realise the repercussions of this particular sack. And uh, the, 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 the comfort I got was the fact that um, I'd already been offered a job at Channel 10. So I knew that I was not going to be out of work. So I um, went home that night, and we had twins. They were about, oh, 12 months old, and they'd run out of nappies. And my wife said, will you go to 7-Eleven and get some nappies? So I went into the 7-Eleven, and there was a group of people around the, the till at the uh, checkout counter, and uh, quite a few of them were crying. I thought, oh, the place must have been robbed. <laughs> so I sauntered up to the side, and I heard them all chatting, and I heard one of the old ladies say, and you know, he's got twins. And I realised <laughs> they were talking about me. Oh, wow. And then the following morning, it was raised in Parliament, uh, how Sydney, why, why Sydney organisations were dictating what people in Melbourne should watch and uh, who should get the sack, and it became a political issue. Meanwhile, everyone in Melbourne boycotted Network 7. No one watched and their ratings dropped to an asterisk, yeah. which was um, uh, zero. And uh, it cost them, I was told uh, at a later time, uh, that the, the cost of the Fairfax takeover of seven was close to $600 million they lost in revenue. Wow. Um, and just, a, just as a little uh, addendum to that story, my uh, successor, Greg Pierce from Sydney, arrived to take over. And he told me the story that he got in to a taxi. He got out of Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne, got into a taxi, threw his bags in the back, sat next to the driver, and the driver said, where do you want to go to, mate? And uh, he said, oh, Channel 7. He said, oh, you work there, do you? He said, yeah, I start Monday. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm the new newsreader. <laughs> he said, the taxi slowly pulled to the side of the road, and he says, well, mate, you can get out here. Sure, so I'm not going to drive you. <laughs> You're kidding me. Taxi. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> And that was that was the feeling. That was the uh, the enormous public outrage that Sydney could interfere in something that was so very much a Melbourne institution as Channel Seven was. That so, is a classic um, story. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it was it was an uh, unprecedented time, and it, it was in fact the best thing that ever happened to me because. Um, when I went across to Channel 10, three years later, Channel 10 went into receivership, and there was a whole round of cost-cutting and people sacking, and I went to the uh, the boss, and I said, look, in light of what's happened, how safe am I? And he said, mate, he said, what happened to you at Channel 7? I've spoken to the receivers who've taken over the network. Your name is at the bottom of the list, and it's marked never to be sacked. And, you know... <laughs> He said, "You are a protected species as a result of the as as a result of the backlash from what happened at seven. And I never was that. I saw my whole uh, you know career out at, at Channel Ten. Uh, saw many people go in the in the process, 
But uh, as I said earlier, you know, the three certainties in, in life, death, taxes, and cutbacks in television, and uh, that's the way it is. Well, one of those uh, processes that where someone else was sort of sacked, it wasn't yourself, in 2012, um, at the end of an evening bulletin, you said probably more could be said, but now is not the time. Um, I guess that was obviously a reference to Helen Kapilos being sacked from 10. No farewell given. Her, I understand her security pass was just yanked and she was set, set on her way. Yeah. With, with, with time passed now, can you tell me more about that situation and about that well, very small yeah. but significant statement you made that night on November 2012? Yes, I can remember that quite clearly. Um, <clears throat> again, we knew that there were going to be another round of cutbacks. Um, and, I, you know, and, and I knew that I was coming up to the end of my tenure. Uh, I, I was 17 when I applied my first job in media, and I was approaching 70. So, you know, I knew that my, my, my days were, were coming up, and they knew it too. Uh, so I thought that if ever there was anyone that was going to be on the chopping board, it would be me because I was coming to the end of my career. Um, and the, the, there is no nice way of getting rid of people. Uh, there's a nice way in which you can tell somebody that they're no longer wanted. And the boss um, knew that Helen Kapalos was going on holiday. She was going to New York uh, on that, that weekend, I think it was a Friday when uh, she was told uh, that she was no longer required. Um, so what happened was the um, uh, the boss felt it would have been terrible for her to be away on holiday and read about it without being told personally, you know, face to face. Uh, and he did it as nicely as he possibly could. Uh, and she was obviously very, very upset. I was, um, I, I was suffering from sore throats at that time. I had time off work. I was uh, down uh, at a friend's place, and uh, I, I heard the whisper that uh, Helen Kapalos had, uh, had been terminated. And, and, and I was furious because of the two of us, it should have been me. It shouldn't have been her. And so I seethed over that. Uh, for the whole weekend, and on the Sunday night, uh, I thought, "Stuff it, I'm I'm quitting." Uh, so I went into my office and I cleaned out my office. I emptied my drawers, took all the photos off the walls, packed them up, and loaded them into my car. And on my final trip down to the car, someone stepped into the lift and saw me doing it, and I thought, mm. <laughs> And I'd never, I'd never seen these people before, so I had no idea who they were. But the following Monday morning on the local radio uh, breakfast show, uh, they have a little segment called The Rumor File. And uh, they said, oh, <clears throat> here's the rumor of the morning. Uh, Mal Walden was seen emptying his office oh. last night. Uh, uh, and my boss heard it. And about an hour later, there's a knock on the door, and there's my boss. And he said, is it true? And I said, yeah. And so we had this um, very tearful sort of uh, confrontation, if you like. And I said, look, I just can't stand all this anymore. I've, I've had it. And he said, no, 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 just think about it. Just think about it. Anyway, he talked me around. He said, look, um, we're going back to single readers right around the network. 
not your readers. And please, you know, come in tonight and we'll, we'll talk it through and, uh, and we'll see how we go. So I thought, oh, well, let's not be too prima donnaish about all this. And I said, yeah, okay. So I was, I was very upset by what had happened. They did it as nicely as they possibly could. Helen was obviously very, very upset. And, uh, but that is the way of the industry. That's what happens. There's no nice way of telling someone their services are no longer required. Having been there, I know what it feels like. So was there... so what, that, uh, that was, that was, I'm just leading up to that. Yeah. That's why I said more will be said about this at a later date. Mm. It's not quite uh, as you see it, but it was not for me to, to explain everything. This is the first time I've actually talked about it, but uh, that, that, that's what happened. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. All right, well, let's get to the to the 10 announcement recently in which pretty much the entire on-air news team has been made redundant in Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth and news centralised from Melbourne and Sydney. And, of course, a, a team of, you know, back operations staff in all markets have been let go. Um, there is people that have worked for the network for 30 years plus. In an advertising downturn, uh, you know, with these cuts, they're, they're almost expected, but... Did you think that the presenters would have thought that they would totally axe bulletins in three markets? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to think of... Uh, to, to just catch that question again. Uh, you, you want my reaction on well, uh, the, uh, the teams? Because it... It was, it, was, it was just more in reference to, I suppose, people sort of understanding that cuts are being, being made. So, you know, people sort of expect, oh, there could be a round of cuts. But I'm just wondering if you think that they expected that they would be totally axing um, the news in three markets. I mean, that, that was a... It's... But they're not axing the news. They're, aren't they axing just uh, uh, some of the readers? Are they? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I beg your pardon. I'm following you now because they've now they've decided to uh, put the news out of various uh, different locations, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, so and they've, they've yeah. done this. They've done this before. You, um, Adelaide was read out of Melbourne for a good number of years in the in the nineties. Um, George Denikin, who is the newsreader from Adelaide, came over and lived in Melbourne, and they read it out of the, the Melbourne studio. Um, so it can be done. They've proven before that uh, it can be done. It's not as if they're then they're, they're not complying with the uh, the fact that there's, there's not going to be a new service. It's just going to be done out of a different uh, location. And I don't think, I honestly, I mean, I'm not privy to their uh, decision making process at all. I'm a, I'm an observer now, but having done it before and it and they made it work technically, there's no reason why it can't be done. I mean, it's not ideal, but if they're going to cut back in, in costs, that's one way of doing it. But my only um, 
concern about the whole thing is is the diminishing of the value of news, which is what is happening. Uh, It's happening all over the place. Um, They're getting rid of some. I'll give you a perfect example. Just before I, uh, two years before I left Network 10, there were 57 people in that newsroom churning out news bulletins from morning, afternoon, evening, and late at night. Desks, 57 computer pods in that newsroom. On the day I left, there were six people running that news service. Uh, And they managed they have managed. They can manage with six. Um, technically, the, the technology these days means they can do it. Uh, it, it. You can cut costs and everything like this. Comparing another set of figures, um, around about that time, I was looking at uh, the viewers free-to-air television around Australia, and there was about 90% of Australians get their news <clears throat> from uh, free-to-air television. Mm. Now, if anyone has a market of 90%, that's not a bad basis to run a business on. Uh, and they divide it in th- three ways, three commercial networks. Uh, so they, they are making money. But in the process over the years, it's taken a lot of money to run those three networks. Mm. The franchises of programs are multi-million dollar franchises, MasterChef, um, all, all, all the big production numbers cost millions of dollars just for the franchise without the production costs. Yeah. Um, so it's costing a lot to keep the keep the networks on station, uh, online. Uh, and then the latest figures this week came out that uh, viewers on uh, viewers to free to air television news has um, multiplied almost 200 to 300%. Mm. That's a massive increase because of you know, the lockdown and the people at home watching television. But that doesn't translate to revenue because of the, of the cutbacks out there in the marketplace. There's no money coming in. Yeah. So might they've got viewers, but they haven't got the money coming in. So they've really got to start cutting back. They've really got to. Uh, and, and that's how I feel as though they're justifying cutting back in the cost of news. I think the, the, the big difference, though, is when they centralised it last time, they were reading an Adelaide bulletin from the eastern states, but it was actually an Adelaide bulletin that was being read separately. Now, under this new, yes. new under this new arrangement, and we'll take Adelaide as an example, Jennifer Kite's going to present one combined bulletin for Adelaide and Melbourne. So straight up, Adelaide is already now on a 30-minute delay. To make it appear local, Jennifer will pre-record the opener and perhaps the first two or three stories that will be Adelaide-based. Then I will cut that back into the bulletin. Then Stephen Quartermain will have a pre-recorded sports bulletin for Adelaide, so they've got, you know, the Adelaide Crows and all that sort of stuff for that market. And then a mm. national uh, meteorologist will have to pre-record the weather for, for the uh, local Adelaide. So Adelaide will essentially get this delayed cut version of the news with pre-recorded elements. I mean, that's definitely a change than just reading the Adelaide Bulletin from the eastern states. Um, do you think? I mean, do you think that's a, a major concern? Oh yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> and you think it's a it's a concern for Adelaide? I, I, I think there's even a greater problem with the Perth news coming out of Sydney. Yeah. Um, where there's no feeling for. I mean. Uh, Perth, Western Australia, you know, is a pretty AFL-orientated state. They like their football. Um, Sydney like their their uh, rugby. 
Um, and the two just don't... I mean, I don't know how they're going to um, compromise uh, their coverage of news when it's coming out of Sydney. I mean, I kind of Melbourne, Adelaide, because in a way they've done that a little bit before. But Sydney, Perth, oh, I, that, that, that's a headache. And I'm glad it's theirs, not mine. I'm just, you know, because you've been doing this a long time, I could just imagine, you know, you having what it would be like to doing that now. So you sort of get to work and rather than just get there at five o'clock, we're going to read this bulletin. It's, it's Mel, look, can you do an Adelaide opener and say, you know, hello to Adelaide and then do a couple of things. We'll pre-record that. Then hand over to Sport for Adelaide, but we'll just make that an Adelaide and then we'll redo the... It's, it's just a funny... It must be, it would be a funny way of doing the news when you're used to just reading one oh, live bulletin. Look, Aaron, it's going to be a logistical nightmare, but I'm sure they've done their sums and they've worked out a method in which they'll be able to do it. Um, one assumes they're not totally stupid... Uh, I don't quite know uh, what level of stupidity there exists in television management these days, but uh, they're not. I wouldn't think they're totally stupid. So they would have done a little bit of homework yeah. and worked out some sort of logistics. But uh, look, the, 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 the final analysis, the final test will come when they like, like it or they'll leave it. Mm. And, and, and they will be the ultimate test of whether it's a success or not, the viewers. You mentioned earlier before about there's sort of no easy way of, of doing this whole redundancy thing type thing. Now, with this round of cuts, everyone still has less than four weeks on air, so it appears that they'll get proper send-offs and all that sort of stuff. It, it, do you think that's actually a small beacon of light for these people, or is that just a minimal mm. is issue that you just get to have a send-off? Oh, I don't think a send-off is uh, that important, to be honest. Um, I think there'll be such a feeling of being shell-shocked as to what has happened. They, they want to just get out as quickly as they possibly can. I mean, the, the, the last thing you'd want to do is work for an organisation knowing they don't want you there. Uh, I, I would just want to get out as quickly as I possibly could, which is what I did at uh, Channel 10 in my, in my last three years. I couldn't wait to get out. Um, it's a terrible feeling. I, I watched around me as Lachlan Murdoch totally destroyed the network. He wiped a billion dollars off the share market price by his very, his very hands-on approach to the network. Everything he touched was a, a, a logistical failure. And, and it was so frustrating to see a, a network that we prided ourselves on um, uh, sort of building up uh, just being totally destroyed. And so I couldn't wait to get out. Uh, fortunately, Channel 10 were very good to me and they allowed me to leave uh, on the day of my Tuesday. Very unusual in television. They normally either escort you to the front door or toss you out physically. But uh, they were very good for me. Uh, that was the Melbourne um, management structure of Channel 10. Uh, I, I really... Um, very impressed with the way they handled my, my farewell. Well, this time when they went into administration this time uh, and there were different uh, people sort of bidding for the network and the Murdochs won, I mean, my contacts at 10 were sort of saying, I hope that doesn't happen, and they were really, really happy that CBS was actually coming because they thought that they were going to be putting all this 
money and all this stuff well, into the network? I mean, were they naive, or, or, yeah. or could everything just be blamed well, on COVID now? Because it's it's. Well, I I I have a theory about this. Uh, I'm. Someone once said, if you don't listen to history, you're bound to repeat it, right? And I've never seen history repeat so often as it has at Channel 10. And in all the cutbacks and all the turbulent times at 10 over the previous years, it's always been preceded by a sale, mm. either a share buyback or someone else is, is moving in on the network. And I, I've got nothing to base this on, but I suspect, and I still put it this way, I would not be at all surprised if you read the CBS one out. And uh, they're just um, they're, they're tidying up the books, so to speak, for, uh, for uh, a sale. I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is what this is all about. Mm. Well, with, with all of this happening, um, can you ever imagine... I mean, Channel 10's always been a slightly different beast to 7 and 9. Um, uh, could you ever imagine that in the next decade, 7 or 9 would walk away from local news um, in markets like Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth and 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 head to the east? Or is a lot of yeah, us, a lot of us think that, that, yeah. that's a, an absurd thought. But, I mean, with, with this happening to 10, could it happen anytime soon? Have you seen what's been happening to Nine? Uh, Nine dropped their regional news services and they've just reinstated them. Yeah. Uh, they've just got a $20 million uh, uh, support from the federal government. So they've reinstated all their regional, their three regional news services. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I don't know what the future of it is. I, I speak of Channel 10 because I'm, I'm very fond of the network. Um, the Channel 10 um, was the third commercial station to join, uh, to come online back in 1964. And, be, and it, I remember somebody once saying, it's a bit like um, three siblings in a family. It's the third sibling that has to struggle to make, it, uh, to, 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 to make an impact. Uh, it, it's hard for the third sibling in a family to uh, struggle to get an identity. And being Channel 10 was the third network, it has struggled more than all the others to find an identity. But in the process of doing that, they've experimented far more than other networks. And some of those experiments have worked and some of them haven't. Now, I'm not uh, privy to the programming, but I certainly am to the news. And I know that Channel 10 News was the first to go at 6 o'clock, when all the other news services were at 6.30, they were the first to go for an hour. They were first to go with two readers. They were the first to go at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And that set off precedent where other networks started putting their news services earlier and earlier. Channel 10 were really the pioneers in so many different ways. Uh, so it's a, it's a very resilient network, but it has struggled uh, more than most of the others. Well, a question about um, uh, newsreaders in, in general. Um, looking at the, the ratings that come through for each channel, how important is the main news presenter in the ratings uh, performance of the bulletin? How, how what? Sorry, I just missed that. Yeah, no, um, when you're looking at ratings um, and you obviously yeah. have, have, have the main presenters, how important is the actual main presenter to the to the ratings performance oh. of the bulletin? Because some people think it's right. it's the bulletin itself. Some people think it's the actual newsreader. Some think it's a combination of everything. Well, it is a combination of everything. I used to say it's a, the success of a news was the three P's: the programming, the product, and uh, the performance of the newsreader. It's uh, 
and it, 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 it's it's a lot. Newsreader is 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 like the the full court and the football team. He's the one that has to keep the goals, but he can't do that without a team behind him. Uh, a newsreader is a, is a, is a part of a whole team effort to get that bullet into air. But he or she or both of them, that is the point of difference. Because when you look at the news bulletins on most networks most nights of the week, they're the same stories. Um, the only point of difference is the person that's presenting them. Um, and the longer that news reader is identifiable with that product, the more valuable he becomes to that network. So it, it's usually... A, 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 Get rid of a newsreader is the the last choice network management have uh, if they have to cut back or if their ratings aren't performing. But in 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 all the years I was reading, there were very few years that we were number one, uh, and it didn't seem to um, inhibit my career one bit. Um, uh, number one for a few years at Channel Seven, number one for a few years at Channel Ten. But out of fifty three years, uh, only about eight or nine of those years, was I ever a number one newsreader? Well, I guess that explains, you're saying, if they st stay on as, as long as possible, that, I guess that explains Rick Arden and Susanna Carr in Perth. I mean, they've uh, now got to 35 years reading the news together, and they have, like, tripled the ratings of nine in that market. Yeah. Well, actually, I look along. That, that's a ch uh, They're at uh, what channel? Uh, Seven. Seven, yeah. Well, seven in Perth, it was very much like Channel 7 was in Melbourne in the 70s and the early 80s, uh, an iconic station. People just turned to that network um, through habit more than anything else, but obviously because they liked what they saw. Yeah. Uh, and once you establish a habit, it's very hard to break it. Absolutely. So, um, and the longer you're there, the more you establish credibility. So uh, it, it, it works hand in hand. <laughs> you, the longer you're there, the, the longer you like to stay there. Well, 60 years and you've worked with some of the most well-known presenters. Um, uh, is, there, is there one or two people that, that you would say was a career highlight working with? And, and if you can, one or two that you, uh, you probably didn't quite click with and... Yeah, well, I I wouldn't talk about anyone that I didn't click with because, <laughs> quite frankly, there, were, there weren't many that I didn't get on with. Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate that um, I came through what we call the class of uh, uh, 76, uh, where Brian Naylor was the newsreader, David Johnson was the number two, and I was the number three. Um, Little did we know that, you know, 10, 15 years' time, we'd all be, three of us would be competing against each other. Yeah. Naylor on nine, uh, David on DJ uh, on 10, and I was on seven. So the three close mates became three very intense competitors for quite a number of years. Um, and we were all trained and mentored by the same person. Wow. And I think it's fair to say his name was John Maher. He's not a, a household name, but he was perhaps the most successful news director ever on Australian television. He mentored and produced the very first newsreader on Channel 7 back when television first came on air in 56, Eric Pierce. And when Eric Pierce left and went across to Channel 9, he then mentored successor, Jeff Raymond. And when Jeff Raymond left, he then mentored his successor, Brian Naylor. And then he mentored myself, and he mentored David Johnson. So of, of all the news directors, uh, he is what I can 
delighted to be the greatest director of news. He just, he knew what, he had a great sense of news. Yeah. He knew what constituted a good story. And he pushed, he, he would not succeed in today's uh, environment of um, uh, perfection and uh, political correctness, particularly political correctness. Um, he'd break every rule in the book. But in those days, it didn't matter. He, he just pushed you. He saw your weak points. He'd, he'd work around them. But he got product out of us all. Uh, mm. he, he was an amazing guy. Yeah. Uh, but no news editor, no news editor lost so many crews in the process. He lost f four colleagues in East Timor, oh. and then he lost an entire crew in a helicopter crash. Um, so there was an, an enormous price to pay, uh, and not his fault at all, mm. uh, but an enormous price to pay emotionally for uh, uh, the role as a, as a head of news. Wow. Well, something... Uh, John Ma, his name was. Yeah. So he, he was my greatest mentor, yeah. Well, something a bit light now, bloopers. Everyone loves a blooper. Are you, of course, known <laughs> no for a few and, of course, that phenomenon. Um, have you, have you, yeah. you know how to say that word now? Yeah, I mean, yes. A phenomenon. <laughs> I... I, I uh, I've, I've always taken my, my job very, very seriously, but I've never taken myself quite as seriously. Mm. Um, when I first started in the, in the industry, in radio, way back in the 60s, um, I was very much aware of the newsreader who announced that a woman had been bitten on the funnel by a finger-web spider. Oh. And I was always very, very much aware of uh, how easy it was to slip into that uh, uh, the, the, the blooper trend. Uh, I announced the winner one day um, presented her with her Sophie and trash instead of a trophy and sash. Uh, <laughs> I announced I announced in the news that there'd been a terrible boss bumming in London instead of bus bombing. Yeah. Um, and, and then phenomenon came up, and I could see the word in the script, and I'd had difficulty during the rehearsal. So I thought, well, if I do stuff it up, I'll have a little bit of a play with it. So, uh, you know, it was an accidental uh, blooper, but I had a bit of fun with it. Uh, hence the uh, – uh, it seems to have followed me around a bit. Um, look, we won't do a whole this is your last series of questions, but, but you did start in, in radio at 1961 at breakfast. Was journalism, I was just interested if journalism was always your first choice. Was this a kid growing up reading the news to his family or was this an accidental path? Well, it was kind of accidental. I was interested in radio, but I was interested in the technical side of radio. Oh. I used to make, and uh, it was in the process that... Uh, I was tinkering around with a little one-valve radio when uh, my dad met somebody in television and he said, oh, I have a son who's interested in radio, uh, meaning he's interested in the technical side of it. So I met this guy and he said, oh, you've got a reasonable voice. Why don't we get, have you ever thought of becoming an announcer? And I said, well, no, not really. So he put me in touch with somebody who trained me up. His, he was an iconic broadcaster himself. His name was Lee Murray. And I went to him for about 18 months, and finally he asked me to go and apply for a job. I was 17 when I sent my application to 3YB Warnable, and uh, I was successful. So I started as a junior announcer at uh, 3YB Warnable. Mm -hmm. And then on the mo I was doing a breakfast show on a Saturday morning, 23rd of November, 1963, when in walked the newspaper boy, 
who was delivering the warnable standard from which I would circle stories and read as a local news service a little later on in the program. And we'd always have a little chat. And his name was Tom. And I sort of said, good morning, Tom. What's news this morning? And he said, Kennedy's dead. Yeah. And I said to him, I switched off the microphone, said, you can't say that, believing that if Graham Kennedy had died, it was not up to a 14-year-old newspaper boy to announce it. So I switched the microphone back on, and he said, no, it's true. It, President Kennedy's been shot. Um, so that was the end of our conversation. I rang the general manager, who in turn rang the uh, chief engineer, who happened to be a radio ham operator. Now, a radio ham operator dabbles in shortwave radio, and they talk to like-minded people around the world. So he patched through to the station Voice of America. And then my boss rang me back, and he said, are you getting the signal? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'll, get, I'll put you in charge. You put to air what you consider to be appropriate. So at a, uh, I think I was about 19 at the time, and I was given the opportunity of putting to air the developing events in in Texas and Dallas, the assassination of JFK. And we became the first radio station in Australia to take a live coverage. We broke all the rules of the uh, broadcasting handbook by doing it, but we never ever got ticked off about it. But the adrenaline rush I got from breaking that news story would become an addiction. And it was the driving force that channeled my whole career. About uh, in 1969, when man landed on the moon uh, and the world stopped and watched in awe as Armstrong made his giant leap for mankind, I was more impressed with President Nixon picking up the phone in the Oval Office and talking to these guys on the moon in real time on the telephone. Mm. And I suddenly realized then at that moment that television through satellites had caught up to the immediacy of radio in breaking news. So if there was going to be uh, a future in, in news, it was to be in television. And so I <clears throat> was at 3DB in those days, 3DB in Melbourne, the radio station, which was owned by the Herald and Weekly Times. And I sort of had enough of the industry by that stage. I'd been in it since 1961. And uh, I was getting sore throats. So I had my tonsils out. Uh, I claimed on HBA, I double claimed on the Herald Medical Fund, <laughs> made a profit of $300, bought a one-way ticket on the Fairstar and went to London. Yeah. And uh, then from London I went down and I worked in Israel. And uh, I worked on a kibbutz in the Middle East. Wow. And I got, a, I got a call from 3DB saying, you're in a very exciting area of the world at the moment. They'd just come out of winning the Six-Day War, and it looked like they were heading into another war, the Yom Kippur War. So they said, can you file stories for us? And uh, so I started filing news stories from the kibbutz where I was working in, yeah. in, in Israel. And then one afternoon when I was walking back to my room, a car pulled up in the car park surrounded by security and out stepped uh, the general that led the Israeli forces in the Six-Day War, Hoshi Dayan, uh, the guy that you wore the black patch. He was quite identifiable with the black patch over his eye. So I raced back to my room and grabbed a, a cassette recorder. And on the flip side of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, I did an interview with Moshi Dayan. Oh. And Moshi Dayan, and during that interview, he, he, he came out with a classic statement, uh, the Americans offer us money, the Americans offer us guns, and the Americans offer us advice. And we take the guns and we take the money. 
Mm. And it was a real put down for the Americans. And that became quite a, a controversial statement by the Israeli general. Anyway, at the end of the interview, he looked at me and he looked at the little handheld cassette recorder and he said, Jinjing, referring to my red hair, next time you interview me, make sure it's with a camera because television is the future. And it was wow. not a, a, wasn't a definitive moment in my life, but it was an affirmation. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go and make a success in my career, <clears throat> I have to go back to Melbourne. And the thing, the situation in Israel was deteriorating. So I headed back, and uh, I headed back overland, so it was a pretty arduous sort of a trek. But I finally made it back home, and I've always said that the success, uh, uh, the longevity in television is not what you know, but who you know, and being in the right place at the right time. And when I got back to Melbourne, my colleague at 3DB, Ron Casey, had been promoted to station manager of Channel Aspen. So I naturally went to him for a job. Mm. And he said, yeah, I'll give you a job. I'll give you a job as a, as a booth announcer, just a general uh, voiceover man. Uh, I said, what about news? He said, oh, that's a, diff that's a hard nut to crack. But at least you've got a foot in the door if you accept this job. So I accepted. And it was June the 6th, 1970, when I joined Channel 7, and that very first night, the late-night newsreader was taken ill. I had to read the news. Yeah. And I read the news that night, not aware that I would be reading the news for the next 43 years on Melbourne television. Right place, right time. Well, you not what you know, but who you know. You obviously had that long career, but you finally did retire. So why did, why did you retire when you did? Well, I retired because of the situation of Channel 10. Uh, I retired because I was fed up with the way uh, certain people were running the, running the show mm. and running it down. I mean, the quality deteriorated. As I said, you know, there were 57 people in that newsroom when I decided to retire. There were just six on the day I walked out. Uh, it was just being wound down to such a degree that the quality was gone. The experience was gone. And you notice that in, in, in other forms of media where, you know, newspapers anymore, uh, and you see mistakes, you know, going to print. Well, we've see, I see mistakes going to air almost every night, not just on Channel 10, but the, the, the quality is not the quality, you know, I hate to sound like we had the best days, but I honestly believe we did. Yeah. Um, we always like to think that we're going to leave the place we live, the place we work in a better condition when we leave than it was when we started. Uh, sadly, in that case anyway, that's not the case. I don't think the world is really a better place than it was when, uh, at the moment, and I don't think television is. But, uh, my God, I've had a good time in it while I've been there. Well, I was going to ask, do you miss it all, the day-to-day -day stuff in the media? Sorry? I, cut out. I, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, did you, um, you must miss it all, though, uh, despite the end parts and that, you know, with your career. Did you miss all the day-to-day -day, um, cut and thrust of media? What, what, what I miss about it uh, are other people. Yeah. Uh, I miss terribly. I mean, you, you make so many good friends and you make, uh, yeah, life friends because you're like-minded people. And it's very important to, I always say, you know, when I say um, to young people to get into the industry or the two things you must do, it's not what you know, it's who you know and right place, right time. Right place, right time is a matter of luck. But the, and, and then you have to make the most of that opportunity. But 
it, in that phrase I used, it's not what you know, it's who you know, that is something that you have to work on. You have to network like-minded people because it's amazing when those people will come back into your life later on and you can help each other. Uh, networking is vitally important uh, to me anyway into the success of anything you do. Mm. Um, and you know some of those people that I've befriended, uh, news readers that I've worked with, um, even you know all sorts of people that I've met. Uh, I'm happy to say you know we're, we're still good friends to this day. It's um, it's interesting, but I've now got myself a, a new career. Well, <laughs> now a writer. Let me just say that's the very next question. Um, you've written a, a, a few books, but your latest one, um, Mel Baldwin's Crazy Crims. Tell me about that one. Well, yeah. Um, I when I first I just just to transgress a little uh, when I when I um, first started in in radio in, in media. My mentor, that gentleman I mentioned to you, Lee Murray, said, when you get down to Warnall, uh, you're going to get hit by information overload. So I suggest you write everything down or you write at the end of each day, just write a little pricey of things that you've been told so you won't forget them. Uh, and I got into a habit of doing that every night or every afternoon or whatever shift I was on. I'd spend five minutes just saying, writing down in a diary a highlight, an observation, and a, or an, and a reaction. Mm. Highlight, observation, and a reaction. Just three points of that day. And I kept a diary for 53, 53 diaries of, uh, of those points. So those diaries were the genesis of my memoir, The Newsman, which came out just after I retired in 2013. Yeah. Um, the publisher who um, was behind it asked me if I had another book in me. And I said, well, in all due respect, uh, it's taken me 53 years to write this one. <laughs> <laughs> to hang around for another 53 years, there's little chance that either of us are going to be here for it. And so he said, no, I suggest you write a book about good news stories. So I wrote a book, and we'll just call it Good News. And then after I finished that, he said, now, can you write a book about all your favorite quotes? Uh, inspiring quotes. Let's leave on something, you know, leave inspirational. So that was my next book. <clears throat> and then last year he came to me and he said, listen, he said, um, I'd like to commission you to write uh, six books over the next four years. Do you think you could do it? And I said, oh, I don't think so. But he said, well, these are the subjects. I want crime um, and I want you to write a book about disasters, and I want a book on uh, aviation, I want a book on uh, legends of Australia, icons and legends, and I want a book on myths, mysteries and the paranormal. Can you do that? So I joined the, uh, the State Library of Victoria, yeah. and I, I trawled through all their archives, and I've come up with some amazing stories. And I've mixed them with a little bit of a, a personal anecdote in, in, in quite a few of them. So just before Christmas, I completed my book of disasters. But then the bushfires struck. Mm. So I had to go back and rewrite the bushfire chapter. And then I just finished that, and the pandemic struck. So I had to go back and write the, the chapter on diseases and pandemics that wiped so many Australians in the past. And I can't put a fin I can't finalise that because I'm not quite sure how that's going to finish. So he said, well... In the meantime, we'll go with um, Prime, 
because of your association with crime, and uh, and we'll do the others in the meantime. So in the period of, that I've been in lockdown, I've been writing furiously, and I finished five books. Wow. So I, I've had a, a pretty busy time. Yeah. But when I when I arrived in um, and this is getting back to the crime book. When I arrived in uh, Australia, I was a nine-year-old. We arrived from the UK with my family, and uh, we headed straight for our new home in Frankston, which is about uh, 20, 30 k's uh, south of Melbourne. And, uh, are you familiar with Melbourne? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we train approaching the Caulfield Station, my total stranger struck up a conversation with me. Yeah. He asked me where I was from, and he said, you know, you've got red hair. You'll be called Bluey here. <laughs> and then he pointed out the window, and he said, see down there? That's where my cousin, the cop, was shot dead. Uh, but they got the bastard, and I hope he rots in hell. Now, that was the first time I'd ever heard of anyone who had known somebody who'd been murdered. And so it was oh. quite an indelible sort of memory in my life. Yeah. By coincidence, it was exactly 27 years to the day, 13th of July, 1979, I met that killer. Oh. His name was William John his name was William John O'Mealy. He was the longest serving prisoner and the last man that was flogged under the Victorian Penal Code. Right. Now, under an, an agreement with HSV7 and the Herald Sun, they'd organized an exclusive interview on his release. And he walked into the studio as I was reading the news that night. And I spent four to five minutes interviewing him at the, at the studio desk. Now, I have to say, it, it triggered a huge storm of protest. Uh, it was the first time cash for crime was raised. That's back in the, in the mid-70s. Uh, and uh, but, and we, we, we didn't do it again. But uh, what I discovered, when Amelie left Pentridge, he bequeathed his job as the jail barber to Gregory David Roberts, a former heroin addict and bank robber. Yeah. And when Roberts, when Roberts asked him, you know, why are you doing this? O'Mealy replied, just look up from this position and you can observe the entire operation of the Pentridge jail system. It's from here that you can plan your escape. And he did. Two years later, Roberts fled to India. And he late, later wrote a best-selling book called Shantaram. Mm. I don't know whether you've read it, but it's a massive book. Uh, and about two weeks later, uh, I received um, uh, a letter from Amelie's cellmate, and he wrote to me asking for a favor. He said, um, "My dad, I saw your interview with, with old Bill, and you seem a decent enough guy. I'm wondering whether you'd do me a favor. My dad's about to have his 70th birthday, and I'd uh, want to send a photo of him, but of me, but unfortunately I've mutilated my face, and I'm wondering whether you've got anything in your files before I did this. So I went to the files, and I found some footage of the prisoner with, uh, and sent it off for processing, and back came these 8 by 10 glossy prints. Mm. That's intact. So I rolled them up and sent them off to Pentridge, and about two weeks later he wrote back to me, and he said, Dear Mel, he said, You're one of the few people in this world that's ever done me a favour. And if ever you need any favors, no matter where, no matter when, I will be your protector for the rest of your life. Signed, Chopper Reed. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, yes. So Chopper, Chopper was my unofficial protector. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did you ever cash in one of those favors and get someone knocked off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, but it was so funny because during those last few months of Channel 10, somebody came to me and said, can you get in touch with Chopper? And I said, oh, 
<laughs> and I could see the headlines now. Newsreader hires hitman to get rid of Lachlan Murdoch. <laughs> it would not have it would not have sat well. <laughs> oh wow! But but the the the, the irony is that is that uh, Chopper died uh, uh, on the day I retired. So uh, um, that that was purely coincidence. What was it? Was there one book in there where it's because because there was one with a really good title like a "Don't piss in my pocket and tell me it's raining." Is that? <clears throat> that was my book of quotes. Oh, the book of That was my, uh, yeah. I was, uh, you know, he asked me to find uh, inspirational stories to, you know, wind up a career on. Stories that inspired me during my, my many years in the industry. And uh, one of them is contrary to what we're actually doing now, but it's uh, do not dwell in the past. Do not dream of the future. Concentrate the mind on the present moment. That was attributed to Buddha. But the ones I, the other one I really liked was the John Lennon quote: "Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans." Mm. And uh, it was Helen Helen Kapilos who actually put me onto this final one. And it was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt who said: "Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds." Discuss people. Mm. Wow. Uh, but uh, we talked about uh, bloopers earlier. Um, I, I worked for a while with uh, Captain Blood, Jack Dyer. And uh, now Jack is not the greatest uh, mentor, or wasn't the greatest mentor, but he did teach me how easy it was to to make a blooper. And I will always remember Captain Blood, Jack Dyer's great quote from Peter Park when he announced with all gusto that the Geelong cats have finally copulated <laughs> instead of instead of capitulated. Uh, that's how easy it is to that's how easy it is. I guess um we'll have to wrap up this podcast because you've been very generous with your time. The final question is I, I had a final question but now I'm just changing it based on um our conversation. There's obviously a lot of emotional feeling going on at the moment with 10 people like Mike Larkin, uh, Tim Bailey, Natasha Belling. What sort of words or learnings could you give from your career that would, I, I guess not, you know, directly at them, but, you know, what you've learned over, over the years that um, yeah. provides... Okay, a I, 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 can sum that up. I can sum that up quite quickly because it was advice that my wife gave me when uh, I left Channel 10. She said, um, when you shut the door, it's amazing what flies in through the window. <laughs> in other words, there's always something out there. It might force you to do something. Something just coincidentally might come your way. I mean, some people are doing pretty well out of this lockdown period. A lot of people are suffering. But occasionally you hear of stories, uh, inspirational stories, of people you know, making, changing directions in their career. Sometimes you need a bit of a push. Uh, to get off that cliff, um, and this might be what some some are needed. There's more opportunities out there that they, than they realise. It's very easy just to go through the day-to-day uh, -day routine as you have over a number of years. Sometimes we need a bit of a push. Um, I'm not saying that I prefer it that way, but uh, you know, um, yeah. if you fail to prepare, you're prepared to fail. Yeah. Champions keep playing until they get it right. Um, it's just there are lots of little inspirational um, philosophical quotes to inspire people to overcome difficult times 
Well, Velvold, what a career. Time flies in these podcasts. It's about 10 or 15 questions I missed, but um, you've been very open, honest and engaging. Thank you so much. Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's almost uh, like therapy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's great. I can now face face lockdown. Thank you very much. No worries. A 60-year career. What a chat. I'm sure there's so much uh, more we could find out. We've mentioned some of his books, the latest being Mel Warden's Crazy Crims, um, my favourite Don't Piss in My Pockets and and Tell Me It's Raining, his his memoir, The Newsman, 60 Years in Television. Episode 3 is done and dusted. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for your feedback on the previous two podcasts. You can contact me uh, on Twitter at Aaron Perth. Who will be the next guest? Keep an eye out at tvblackbox.com.au. I'm Aaron Ryan. Bye for now. 